Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. Listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holliday. And today, Chris, we are very much in student mode once again. Yep. Um, yep. We, are, we, we, we relinquish all expertise at the door right here and right now because we're here to talk about a very fascinating but I suspect very nebulous topic, which is uh, uh, Arab animation, the, 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 the animated uh, worlds of, of the Arab nations. So, yeah. That's that's a really interesting thing to talk about, but a thing I must confess from the start, I am extremely ignorant of, um, as of two weeks ago, and now just very, very, very ignorant of, having watched some interesting films uh, recommended by our guest who will juice in just a second. How about you? Any any prior knowledge or engagement with this world? Anything animated that that that, that you were bringing to the topic today, or is it is it fresh for you as well? Well, I would say, I, first of all, I love these sort of cross-section episodes. I suppose you're sort of torn between wanting to be able to to watch more of all of this stuff, but mm. also knowing that we've only got a very short format in which to, to, to kind of play with. So asking our special guests um, to give us a cross-section of really amazing examples, I think just we get the best of, of both worlds. We get delivered this amazing set of examples that we can we can talk about and learn about. And certainly, I think in both of our cases, be able to direct students to and and watching these films, minds go to what week would this fit perfectly on? So I'm excited to, to talk with our guest about about all of the examples. One of the examples, the last one, which I won't give away, um, appears in one sentence in my book to talk about the arrival of computer animation in various parts of the world. So um, the name rung a bell. I went back into the <laughs> to the book and thought I did, I did talked about that. Right. So um, yes, that, that that's where I am. But I'm super excited to, to go through what looks like a really incredible history of of arab animation whatever that term entails that was the most eloquent way of saying we're not doing any of the work this week this is all down to the guest um see you, see you in an hour <laughs> yeah yep. exactly so let's introduce our guest uh, we are delighted to be joined on the podcast today by omar Seifo, who uh is uh, a affiliated researcher in the institution for cultural inquiry at the university of utrecht um, and a researcher at the um, Avicenna Institute of Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, Omar has published articles uh, on in a variety of different publications, including Animation, uh, Media Industries Journal, the Journal of uh, Popular Culture, and he's also the author of the uh, the book Arab Animation: 
Images of Identity, published by Edinburgh University Press, a book that Chris has been relatively evangelical about over the last few months, um, and a book I'm very excited to discuss uh, with him. So, Omar, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Alexander. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. No, it's, it's, we're, we're delighted to have you, Omar, and thank you so much. As, as we've done in previous uh, episodes where we've introduced listeners to perhaps a, a, a context of animation they aren't familiar with, we've asked you to provide us with five films to kind of provide a very broad snapshot of, of, of a very nebulous, I suspect, term of Arab animation. So I guess before we jump into that list and, 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 and discuss the exciting examples on it, could you perhaps deal with the impossible question of, you know, how are we defining Arab animation? And what are some of the um, themes or concepts or debates that listeners might want to have in mind when they when they want to approach this topic, perhaps for the first time? Well, basically, the Arab world is a geolinguistically region of uh, 400,000 people uh, spread in 22 countries. Uh, therefore, the media industries and cultural industries are quite fragmented there. So uh, you, it's very hard to provide a general picture about how Arab animation is. I would say I call Arab animation and I call animation Arab when the author is Arab or the production is connected somehow to uh, the culture and media industries of Arab countries. That sounds easy enough. Uh, so far, following <laughs> you, so I guess we better define. You know, what what do we mean then by Arab identity more broadly? Are we talking about a particular uh, national context? Are we talking about a, a particular ethnic concerns? I mean, sure, there's some religious concerns built into there. Um, you know, let's let's just sort of see if we can broaden it out just slightly before we before we get to the films themselves. Yeah, there are more layers of identities in the mm -hmm. Arab world. There is the national identity, which is connected to specific uh, states. There is the Arab identity, which unites the Arab people, regardless of which countries they are living in. It's mostly based on the shared language. However, the uh, there's a di uh, diglossia in the Arab world. So there is the Fusha Arabic, which is the formal Arabic, which is uh, the language of uh, the schools, the religion, and so on. It is understood by everybody. However, it's not uh, very much spoken on the daily basis. Okay, so there are regions uh, sharing similar dialect, like the one in the Levant region, speaking about the Palestinian territories, Lebanon, Syria, and parts of Jordan. There is the Gulf uh, dialect uh, shared in, uh, by Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Emirates, Bahrain, and so on. There is the Egyptian uh, dialect, which is quite widely understood in the Arab world because uh, Egypt was traditionally the uh, center of cultural production in the Arab world and imported a vast amount of uh, films starting from the mid-20th century to the other, other Arab countries. And there is, of course, the Maghrebi dialect. That It, uh, it means that uh, identity is always connected to the dialect uh, as well in uh, this regard. And we can certainly talk about the religious uh, layer of the identity because Islam is the shared religion uh, in the whole Middle East and North Africa and also the Gulf. However, there are different notions and understandings uh, uh, to Islam, which is also visible in cultural productions in general and animated cartoons in particular. I'm not surprised you mentioned in the beginning that you never really heard about Arab animation because uh, Arab animation was born from the desire of local authors and producers to provide a cultural alternative for the local audience in the face of the one-way flow of Western and uh, 
and Asian productions. Therefore, the Arab productions are very much meant for local audiences. And some, uh, at some cases, uh, it's quite hard to decode their meaning from, an, uh, from a non-Arab point of view. Yeah, so I think, um, obviously, uh, knowing knowing your book and hearing you talk about this kind of vexed category of the national in relation to um, Arab animation, and, and I think both of us, as Alex said, kind of coming from a position of, of perhaps hearing of one or two of the examples, if that, but wanting to learn a little bit more about what makes up this, this quite nuanced and quite complex history. And I think certainly when we do, again, these kinds of episodes, um, it makes me think of sort of our own positionality thinking about these other 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 in the broader sense of the term but these other cinemas these other national cinemas and actually some of the uh, assumptions that are built into the way that we might understand or engage with and interpret something like uh, arab animation and i'm i'm really interested in in sort of this side of mediating the national which comes through in your book and 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 um i i, I suppose the way in which national identity is made and thought about in these films given who they might be made for and you mentioned kind of local audiences and stuff but it makes me always makes me think when we do these sorts of episodes that actually um when 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 one thinks about Arab animation, certainly from a Western perspective, the assumption is that these these films, and it's not just the Middle East, but all different parts of the world, that somehow that they must be mediating or must be talking about national identity in a way that we don't assume that of American products necessarily or British products or pr- British animated things. Actually, there's something really interesting about interpreting. A lot of these movies, and I, I, when we were when you provided us with the list, and we wrote a little notes about um, notes about them and how they sort of fit in with with some of the arguments in your book, and, and notes about fantasy and animation. I was thinking, isn't it interesting when we deal with? Um, let's say non-Hollywood cinemas one often assumes that the narratives or the themes are intrinsically related to some sort of national history um, in a way that we don't make that leap with with other national cinemas so I just wondered I wondered if you could kind of speak to that actually before we before we get going it seems like these films are really important um, for thinking about national identity actually and national narratives yeah you're absolutely right so uh, animated cartoons were regarded by decision makers at Arab media industries and uh, televisions as a childish format. And for cultural reasons, uh, many of Arab television channels until the 90s, the late 90s, didn't really include budget for uh, chi- uh, for the children programs. Therefore, they tried to fill the slots dedicated for children with the cheapest content possible, which were like dubbed uh, Western and Asian ah. animated cartoons. In many instances, they also Arabized the productions. I remember when I spent as a chi- uh, spent summers as a child in Syria. We were uh, watching uh, loads of uh, Japanese animes, including Captain Tsubasa. If you, <laughs> if you heard yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was called uh, Captain Majid in the Arabized version. And we didn't really realize that it's not Arab because the those who translated it, they did their best to present these productions as Arab productions, basically. So they changed the names. They included even local uh, cultural references in it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, 
those who wanted to engage in Arab, Arab in animation in those who wanted to engage in animation production in the Arab world, like artists and producers, had to find financial sources somehow to cover uh, cover the cost of production. And one way to manage so was to convince the decision makers why these productions are important and relevant. Um, and one way to convince them was to say that these. Uh, animation productions are in line with certain uh, identity politics in in yeah. these countries and sometimes and, and in some instances they are connected even to the actual political discourse in these mm -hmm. countries therefore we see that there are a number of independent artists mainly in north africa like tunisia algeria egypt many of them who studied uh, animation in in western countries like france and the united states but most of the productions uh, those were televised are very much political and are engaging in, in the making and remaking of uh, national identities one uh, and uh, those who were the producers are i would say without uh, exceptions, were somehow connected to the ruling elite and the decision makers. Interesting, interesting. Well, I think that that perhaps sets up where we where we might start this this journey. And as I say, we're going across different nations and different time periods here. So uh, listeners, forgive this very broad introduction, but hey, hopefully it will whet the appetite for, for some future works. But let's, yeah. let's start with your number one choice. So um, this is from 1937. It's an Egyptian uh, production and you mentioned the the importance of Egypt in in, in, de, in as a locus for kind of Arab cultural production um, uh, and it's and it features a character called Mishmish right so uh, tell us about this uh, this uh, cartoon that you've selected for us um, Omar and 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 why you've picked this to start us off. Well, basically, the authors of Mishmish Afendi were not Arabs. However, the production is very much connected to the Egyptian uh, cultural and political environment. Therefore, I start my book with this uh, this example. And the listeners are lucky enough to uh, to be able to access an amazing documentary about the Frankel brothers, who were the authors of Mishmish Afendi. It, uh, this documentary came out uh, two uh, two years ago. It's called Bukra Film Mishmish, and it's an Israeli production. So uh, the Frank the story of the Frankel brothers started in Tsarist uh, Russia, where the the uh, where the circumstances for Jewish community started to heat up. Therefore, the father of the Frankel brothers uh, departed to uh, the Palestinian territories, then ruled by the British until uh, some tensions started to grow de uh, there as well so uh, he decided to uh, to take his fam uh, family to egypt to the city of alexandria uh, which back then in the th in the 30s and 20s was a multicultural uh, city a center of uh, mediterranean culture with lots of uh, non-egyptian communities residing there peace with in peace with the locals the frankel brothers uh, came across animation in uh, Alexandrian cinemas. In 1930, uh, uh, Mickey Mouse debuted in Alexandrian cinemas, followed by Felix the Cat uh, a year later, and it became a, pop a very popular hit there. There were no schools, of course, for animation. Therefore, the Frankels were self-taught in producing uh, these films. And their very first production uh, was Marco Monkey, which came out in 1935. Marco Monkey wasn't an 
Egyptian production, uh, speaking about the story and the characters. It very much resembled the uh, American environment. The clothes of the uh, hero, a monkey, was uh, very similar to that of Mickey Mouse. Therefore, it was also appreciated by the local press and hailed as the first uh, Egyptian uh, story, Egyptian animation. And they hailed uh, Marco Monkey as the Egyptian brother of Mickey Mouse. However, they, it was also criticized because back then there was a nationalist tendency in Egyptian cinemas and a tendency of uh, telling local stories for the local people connected to the local Egyptian uh, Egyptian culture. This critique inspired the Frankel brothers to release their next uh, uh, their next show, which was Mishmish Effendi. Mishmish actually in Arabic means apricot. And uh, according to an anecdote, uh, they, when the Frankels wanted to gather money for the productions, they went to a, a very famous local producer and asked him for uh, money to fund uh, the release of, Mish, uh, of the, this animation. But the producer refused it and said, Bukrafil Mishmish, which uh, means uh, uh, like when pigs fly. Uh, so they just uh, took this Mishmish uh, and uh, took it as a name of uh, the main character. Mishmish Effendi uh, is a, a very Egyptian character. He's a member of the Effendiya class. It's a social class, uh, which is also indicated by his dress as Mishmish Effendi dresses a European suit and an Ottoman style fez, making him modern and Egyptian at the same time. I, I'm glad you're mentioning all these references uh, like Mickey Mouse and Betty Booth because one doesn't want to bring all this stuff to every single cartoon outside of the US context. But it, it, it did strike me. This is like a sort of, uh, yeah, it had notes of a kind of uh, early Disney silly symphony to me. It was, you know, Mickey Mouse, but Mickey Mouse when he's sort of still quite raw and quite kind of there's a sexual identity to Mish Mish and there's a transgressive quality to mishmish and um and a, a, yeah a kind of bestial quality to to, to mishmish um whilst engaging with this kind of yeah this this kind of colonial narrative of the sort of yeah the british caricatures um being kind of ousted and and and, and attacked and yeah it seems to me a kind of yeah this kind of trickster figure being used to kind of speak to a certain kind of nationalist um, uh, discourse as well. So yeah, it was interesting that, that I, obviously the Frankels were thinking about these kind of things at the time, so it's not an inappropriate reference. The one reference you didn't mention, oh well, which I couldn't strike me, is that there's also Laurel and Hardy appear in this um, in this cartoon towards the end, or at least I suspect it's Laurel and Hardy, right? Could you? How did that happen, and what's and what's what's that in reference to? Because I didn't quite get that angle in it. The answer is simple. They were popular characters in Egyptian cinema of their time. Okay. And if you can also find Charlie Chaplin in it. And basically, uh, there were a huge number of American films uh, presented in Egyptian cinemas, uh, some uh, mostly dubbed, uh, not sorry, mostly with Arabic subtitles. Therefore, the Frankels regarded American productions and American pro uh, popular culture as an, an ultimate example. If you take a look on the representation of the characters in Mishmish Effendi, you can see that Mishmish Effendi, however, he's an Egyptian being a, because he's an Effendi. His uh, design and uh, recalls uh, Mickey Mouse. Uh, if you take a look on his eyes, for example, and his movements recall Felix the Cat. Meanwhile, he has a good friend, Fayumi, 
who is an Upper Egyptian, a Nubian character, whose representation recalls the representation of the African-American characters of uh, Disney animation of their time. Yeah. And also, as we see, there's Bahia, his lover. He pretty much looks like Bretty Boop, and he has a donkey. I can't remember the donkey's name. I'm not sure if it was mentioned. Uh, which, who looks basically like Pluto, the dog. So I I have loads of questions and and i i mean i absolutely love this absolutely love this cartoon and same as 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 both of you have said um that sort of and you you mentioned this in the book this idea that it's almost a hybrid product that is both american and it is egyptian at the same time it has that dual identity so i was really struck by that that hybridity and and it it just seemed actually to be a celebration of of american animation which is is tricky because on the one hand yes there are these explicit references to both kind of live action performers um that you mentioned chaplin lauren and hardy eddie Cantor, but there are also references to betty boot to felix the cat um to that as alex said that raw construction that raw rubber hosed um mickey mouse character before he perhaps came subject to that hyper realist impetus that that gradually took over disney and and certainly i think the felix the cat reference and i'm glad alex used the word trickster because an article by that i've mentioned several times well i've mentioned it several times whether alex has cut it out of episodes i can't remember but Probably. Um, an, probably. Um, an article by Pr- Patricia Vettel Tom that talks about Felix the Cat as a, as a modern trickster. And actually, I absolutely felt that with, with Mishmish. Um, really struck by the kind of comic book style, the left to right movement. And I've just written very Felix. But my, my question, uh, my question was actually going to be is it right? And this goes back to something Alex said right at the start. Is it kind of because it's so explicitly hybrid and it is making all these references to American culture, um, presumably that was to, to, to sort of, it was drawing inspiration from that, but it was also recognising what was popular because I, I'm sort of, I was struck by your use of the word um, Arabized um, when talking about, um, when talking earlier on about, about um, certain kinds of cartoons. And so I just wondered, is it, is it are we are we on safe ground saying that this was borrowing from American culture in a really explicit way to make this this cartoon kind of sellable abroad or popular abroad or speaking to audiences that were local but pulling in that kind of aesthetic or or, or was it even within that are we still able to say no this is a particular kind of arabized version of this like because the the scenes with the female dancing and performance is clearly trying to to sort of bring two worlds together and i so i just wondered i i don't really want to downplay the film by saying oh it's really american and it's just borrowing from what was popular clearly it's a lot more complex than that it is trying to balance pop culture from one part of the world but also appeal to a local so i just wondered if it because that's a tension but it's also a really rich tension i think in the film yeah, national animation productions, talking about the Czech Republic or Russian or Russian animation or Chinese or Japanese animation, usually recall earlier traditions of figurative illustration. However, in talking about the Middle East, it's very hard, or the Arab world in particular, it's very hard to find figurative uh, illustration traditions. There are some, there are some medieval chroniques uh, showing like images of people and images of animal how however they are not as widespread as the visual traditions uh, in talking about europe or asia 
Therefore, Disney and Arab and uh, therefore Disney and Asian and European animation were always regarded as a high example by right, Arab right. producers, starting from the Frankel brothers and until until recently. So, if you read uh, the interviews with Arab producers, you can trace this aim to be the. This, the Walt Disney of Egypt, the Walt right, Disney right. of Syria, the Walt Disney of the Arab world in uh, general, because basically they uh, admire Walt Disney because of their uh, excellence in quality, uh, in uh, storytelling, in visual quality. But in the same uh, time, they regard it as a cultural other or a foreign production uh, representing uh, foreign values for uh, the Arab audience. Therefore, they try they are trying to reach the the same quality in visual and narratives however they try to include their own notions of identity to uh to counter somehow the one-way flow of yeah. western uh, cultural productions yeah no it's really um, interesting I, I... not to open up a can of worms but what, what but well just as of length but you said, why is that figurative illustrative culture less prevalent in 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 the nations we're discussing today is it to do with uh, concerns over iconoclasm, or is it? What's what's what's? Is there a, is there a reason behind that that we that we can trace, or is it just one of those things? It's uh, basically yeah. <laughs> I'm absolutely uh, you're absolutely right. So we're opening a can of worms yeah, 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 yeah. because it's <laughs> it's always you know it's like a we're out now. We may as well clear them up. Um, so basically, yeah. it's. Uh, uh, figurative illustrations are not completely absent from the Arab world. However, they are less uh, common than in the Western world. And of course, there are different understandings of Islam. Those regard figurative illustrations uh, as prohibited. Yeah. Okay. However, at the end of the day, it's always very political. And it's not always... Uh, the, the debate is not always about if figurative illustration is prohibited by God or by religion, but about who has the authority to define what is prohibited according to God and uh, and what isn't. So it's a political issue. How, of course, there were figurative illustrations in the Arab world, speaking about the medieval chroniques, as I mentioned before, and also uh, in the Ottoman era, there were statues uh, all around, and there were uh, uh, the film industry there. However, however, they were less common uh, than in the in the Western world. It's really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. That was an interesting thing. And then, and the final thing, we, then we must move on to the next film. But we've got a, a quite a big period to jump between um, this film and the next film. So, just because you've alluded to it in your in your opening statements about um, the importance of Egypt to kind of as a as a center of cultural production mm -hmm. could you just say a little bit more about why that became the case obviously we're starting here in egypt but our next film we're gonna we're gonna depart from such shores so so why was that the case and, and did that last is that did that last forever or did that change at a certain point perhaps set the scene for for what's to come as we jump forward a few decades egypt was the first arab country to develop an own uh, uh, an own film industry uh, the and uh, Egypt is also the most populous Arab country and uh, back in the early 20th century there were uh, strong cultural links with the other shore of the Mediterranean. Altogether Egypt rose as a center of Arab cinema industry which paved the way uh, for Egypt to be the center of animation production. Uh, animation production uh, uh, 
animation production experienced the golden age in Egypt in the 50s at the time of Jamal Abdul Nasser, who was basically a pan-Arab nationalist uh, leader. And for a very simple reason, back then there was a socialist economy. Therefore, uh, the the quantity of goods was very limited. And there were a reason to make advertisements in animation uh, presented in cinema before uh, before uh, popular films. Therefore, like the local uh, local automobile companies, local soup, uh, soup producing companies were releasing their and uh, their advertisement uh, produced by animation in Egyptian cinemas. However, when uh, the era of Abdel Nasser ended, the Sadat era came and Sadat uh, followed this, which is which is called in Arabic the infitah policy, so the policy of economic opening. So Western productions and uh, American uh, American goods started to flood the Egyptian market. Therefore, it was not beneficial anymore to produce uh, expensive, uh, slowly produced animation as commercials. Uh, commercials. Uh, so the production of uh, animation in Egypt in the seventies halted somehow and came back in the time of Hosni Mubarak in the 90s when uh, CGI was uh, was introduced and uh, a number of uh, local authors and producers tra traveled abroad to learn the techniques, then uh, established their own studios uh, in Cairo. Egypt, Egypt is, is uh, still a center of animation production in the Arab world. However, uh, well-off Gulf countries are starting to rule the market now, and we see the best quality productions and the ones with the biggest marketing campaign do come from the Gulf, uh, like the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Okay, amazing. Okay, well, and we're going to come to some of those examples in just a, in just a few moments. Yeah. But let's let's jump to our next example, um, which is uh, Princess in the River. This is an Iraqi animation from 1982, I believe. So I think we perhaps we can talk about the context of the 80s uh, that I suspect might play some role in this. But let's start off with the film itself. So um, it's a feature length animation this time. Um, you can say far more about it than than I can, um, Omano. But it's it strikes to me a sort of um, yeah, I mean, it, it, from IMDb, a story of a dying king telling his three daughters that one of them must take the throne, but each king or queen must complete tasks given by the moon pro princess, and then they have to retrieve a golden apple to bring back to the temple to become the new queen. So just from even reading that out, listeners might get a sense of a quite a kind of labyrinthum, slightly episodic, oral storytelling um, uh, set, in, set in the kind of, you know... Um, the world of, of, well, from a Western perspective, a world of kind of the Arabian nights, of oral storytelling, of, of, of courtly life. But, but, but you, Omar, tell us much more about uh, the film and, and, and how it came into being and, and why you find it interesting to the story that we're trying to tell in this episode. Although it looks uh, innocent, as you told as you told the story, uh, yes. Al-Amira Wanahar or The Princess and the Rebel is a very, very political animation. So it it was released in uh, 1982, which was in the midst of the war between Iraq and uh, and Iran. And war were not fought only by bombs and airplanes and tanks, but also by animation. Alamira Wanahar was produced by Babylon, which was a, a semi-governmental production company in Baghdad. 
and it was uh, and the budget was one million dollars, which was quite a lot back then. Lacking local animation industries and uh, uh, lacking local studios, uh, animation work was outsourced to Germany. And the production also involved Joan Palmer, who is famous about Blinkabil. Uh, so it was uh, quite an international uh, international production. So you mentioned one part of the story about the king is passing away and uh, the uh, princess is struggling to became a, uh, to uh, get, uh, get to the throne. However, there was another layer of the story. So the whole story took place in Sumeria which uh, was a point of reference for uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. So, you know, it, uh, Sumeria was a long time ago back, uh, back then. And uh, there, in the ongoing uh, process of nation building in Basist Iraq, the regime uh, took this period of uh, ancient history as an example and a basis of the Iraqi identity. So, uh, because, you know, there were a number of identities present in Iraq. There were Arabs, they were Kurds. Uh, speaking about religion, there were Sunnis, Shias, other uh, Christians, of course, other sects as well. Therefore, uh, the regime wanted to start to find some sort of common ground uh, for all these people. So they went back to Sumeria, uh, which was quite innocent and quite uh, long ago, not to be contested uh, by opponents. In the story, we hear many times uh, the slogan, we are all Sumerians, which uh, which recalls the pan-Arab slogans like we are all Arab, we are all Iraqis. So uh, the characters of the story repeat this slogan uh, quite often. According to the story, uh, the story takes place in uh, a city of Sumer, uh, Lagash, which is uh, next to the so-called brotherly uh, Akkad, another uh, another uh, city, and in the neighborhood we see an evil empire called Nafar and uh, an evil ruler who wishes nothing but to conquer uh, Sumeria and turn the brotherly nations of Sumeria against each other. And the evil uh, the evil ruler of this empire, you can guess what's his name, is Iran. Uh, therefore, this whole story was about uh, uh, it was about national unity. It seems like I recently had a debate with my animation students about the ability of animation to to sort of be able to carry the weight of serious subject matter. And this film, Princess in the River, reading a bit about it um, uh, online. In fact, there's a there's a, we a website that quotes directly your book that talks about it being a staple of Iraqi childhood in the 80s and 90s. That it was repeated. This film repeated quite a lot. That that invites audiences to think about as part of its meta narrative what it means to be to be Iraqi and this this film I think for me crystallized when your book's talking about remaking religious and political identities this this felt quite quite explicit and I and and it seems like animation throughout a lot of these movies the animation is is uh, is able or was was seen as this really valuable accessible tool that rather than you know this is the knife edge on which animation and animation propaganda sits it's it's either diluting the political message or it's sharpening it and making it accessible and digestible and and so it, it seems like animation is this really important political um tool at a time where funnily enough i guess the discussions within film and media studies is increasingly about transnational identity and 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 um 
extraterritoriality and double occupancy and all these sort of different ways that we're all global. And actually, there are scholars that say, no, we aren't all global. And actually, we do need to shore up, you know, our national identities. And it seems like the animated examples, and particularly this one, are, are just really important spaces to think through the consolidation of national identity, animation's use as a tool of of politics and political inquiry and the fact that it the medium is being treated seriously based on what you said earlier around it's you know uh, animation as a, as a childish medium and so forth initially thought of as a childish medium it seems like that that these are animation is is here really being accepted as a way to be able to communicate and reach audiences and and it's being treated seriously because of that and it allows us to go back and look at these films and think about allegory and, and so forth alex you pointed well just you, just you as a, just as a caveat to that i guess a, 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 an addendum to that question for omar is 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 it being treated seriously by its producers the government funding because it's perceived as a vehicle for children, so it's almost like it, we can we can get to in the spite it, of it being animated. Well, well, but it, it almost because it's it's a kind of weird. Par- is it a weird paradox of sort of it's it's be, it's seen as a medium for children and therefore a very useful ideological tool because it's it or is it not targeted at children? Is it meant to be considered in a kind of more critical adult mature audience? Um, yeah. A- a- any thoughts on that? On on how the film sort of yeah, it, how the film's made. The Princess and the Rebel River meant to for a general audience, not only okay. for children. Right, right. And also, basically, this is a tendency because uh, animation producing animation is still expensive. Therefore, producers uh, are trying to convince the funders and decision makers that this certain product is uh, beneficial to co- to spread. Uh, ideologies, political notions, and notions about uh, identity for a general audience. Okay, interesting. So it is. It is. It's. It's meant to be digested within the the public sphere, as as Chris is saying. Then, yeah, interesting. So the message but, but... isn't hidden. It's there to be decoded and found. It's all. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's quite clear. Uh, the message is quite clear. Uh, one case of point is. Uh, Egypt's uh, top uh, top animation of the uh, 90s, which is called Bakkar. Uh, it, it tells a story of a Nubian boy living in Upper Egypt. And the, even the title st- song indicates that uh, Bakkar is Egyptian from his heart and soul and denial flows in his veins. So even the title song of a child, uh, an animation meant for a children audience uh, is very, uh, very explicit, politically speaking. However, the producers also included, uh, in the case of Bakkar characters, uh, those uh, adult uh, viewers can associate with. Therefore, they wanted to make it as a, as a, as a production for the whole family. And one um, and also the uh, most high-profile animated cartoons, especially talking about sitcom animations, are debuting in the month of Ramadan, which is the month of fasting in in the Arab world, and they debut uh, at prime time, which is after the iftar, which uh, which means the dinner, the fast-breaking uh, dinner in Ramadan. This is the most expensive uh, time or spot in Arab television. So advertisements um. are extremely ex- expensive there. 
and this is the time when whole when whole families are gathering around the television set and watching uh, uh, watching whatever is in the television and the productions talking uh, be it animation or live series uh, released in Ramadan are usually becoming points of cultural reference during the year and topics people are talking about so we see that in the month of Ramadan it's the high season of animation production especially when it gets to sitcom animations in, in the Arab world and it's a tool for nation building Really interesting. I'm tempted to go to number three because it's all about that in many respects. All of that is dramatized in the next productions. This is um, uh, from this is from the UAE, uh, 2006. It's called Frish, and this is a uh, a television series, I believe. And we watched a particular episode of it based around Ramadan. I believe that the, the the pilot episode, for want of a better term, um, but I could be wrong there. Correct me if I'm uh, wrong. And this is a sort of what a sort of family sitcom uh, based based in Dubai. Um, yeah, tell, tell us more about Frisch, uh, Omar. Yeah, Frisch uh, was released in 2006, and it tells the story of a neighborhood, a traditional neighborhood in a, in the Emirates. Uh, Frisch basically means this traditional neighborhood uh, in Arabic. And the story revolves around four grandmas who are struggling in their everyday to... Uh, to live in the evolving uh, modern world around them. So basically, the sitcom animation craze started to sweep over the Middle East in the early 2000, uh, thanks to the introduction of 3D animation and modern means of animation, but also modern means of communication, which uh, enabled local producers to outsource uh, the animation phase of the production to other countries. Uh, before that, like it was in the case of uh, The Princess and the River and other productions, producers usually set up their base in other countries however starting from the 2000s it was not like that anymore so uh, the producers uh, or the writers just sent uh, the ideas to the other countries and basically they managed to communicate by uh, by phone by the internet and so on so it became much cheaper Therefore, starting from the early 2000, uh, 2000s, a number of uh, sitcoms uh, debuted in Arab television, uh, mainly in Saudi Arabia and also Egypt, where they remediated and uh, made an animation, animated version of uh, popular, popular uh, live sitcoms. Uh, and uh, the, uh, released the animated version of renowned actors, and mostly comedians uh, there. But this, at some cases, uh, local producers also drew from uh, from Western uh, ideas, as it was the case of Block 13, which uh, came in 2000, uh, 2000. It's a Kuwaiti production. Basically, it's a copycat of South Park. However, instead of uh, Cartman, Kyle, Stan and Kenny, you see Abud, Azuz, Hamoud and Saloum. Cartman's hat is replaced with a takia, which is a local religious uh, kind of white hat. Uh, Kenny is not wearing a coat anymore, but wearing a, a kufia, so he's covered in this uh, Arab scarf. And of course, the uh, the voices are very similar as uh, they are in the uh, American original. However, uh, cultural characteristics are implemented. Uh, while we see Cartman as a how how to say a not so polite uh, boy <laughs> he's still like kind to his mother because local cultural codes doesn't really allow 
showing uh, showing a rude a rude uh, a rude boy mm. in this regard. So Fridge basically just to return to Fridge uh, came in 2006 as the first advanced uh, 3D animation series uh, in the whole Arab world. Uh, it was uh, produced by uh, local producers, but animation was outsourced to India, and it was really a high-quality uh, production, uh, which became an example later on for other shows in the region. It was also very political. Of course, it debuted in Ramadan, in, pri in prime time. And to understand the importance of Fridge, we should take a look on the social scape of uh, the Emirates. So the Emirates... Uh, changed beyond recognition in the last uh, decades after the discovery of oil and the influx of foreign workers. So uh, most of the inhabitants of the Emirates are not locals anymore. Uh, sky, uh, skyscrapers grow out from the ground, replacing old neighborhoods. And in the 90s, the government uh, of different Emirates launched programs which called Heritage Revival, which meant to uh, revive somehow and or reimagine re uh, Emiratiness in general and cultural traditions. It involves uh, four grannies who are connected the young generations with old traditions. In the stories, we see the grannies gathering in a majlis, which is the basically the living room of one of uh, one of the grannies drinking traditional coffee discussing uh, social affairs and talking about their uh, grandchildren and all the four characters are representing uh, the mosaic of emirati society we see uh, a lady of bedouin uh, background we see a lady uh, of uh, probably Iranian background, representing the Ajam community. Those are settled Iranians in, in the Emirates who are now integral part of the society. And we also see one lady who is of African origin, also uh, representing a part of the society. Uh, those are descendants of uh, previous slaves who were taken uh, from Africa to the Emirates, but now are integral uh, part of the local nation. Yeah. Because you, you say in the book that, that sort of at first glance, the series embodies some of the um, the, the look of a, of a Pixar animation studios. You know, it's 2006, so Pixar are about 10 years old. Um, I've speak, spoken on previous episodes of the podcast actually around this period, about 2005 to 2007, where Hollywood's being sort of saturated by lots and lots of computer animated films. And you say that at first glance, the series seems to be about that. But if you look closer, you see these kinds of kind of character archetypes that are speaking quite specifically to um, to what you call Emirati types. Uh I wanted to ask about something where you say do, 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 about how the series is um, became, became popular among audiences, and then you say it became a national icon. Fridge became a national icon and part of a local, popular, and even commercial culture. And then you you say that there was a one minute TV spot celebrating the National Day of UAE. And so I wondered if is that is that kind of I wouldn't say common, but it seems like this this series includes characters that were able to sort of stand in for the nation but also that they were used and wielded again in the same way as as a lot of the other examples that you've given us to be able to sort of stand in as as i i suppose the closest that we have are things like minions or woody and buzz where you have these these characters that seem to have this transmedia existence so that seems quite significant that an animated film or animated series i should say has has these characters that that become these national icons 
Yes, the trend started in the in the nineties with Bacar, this Egyptian production where yeah. uh, like bubble gums were sold with stickers uh, of Bacar, and his his image was all, all around. It it was the same case with Fridge in the two thousands in the Emirates, and later on with other characters aimed for children. Yeah. Another thing that struck me about this was the role of the television sort of in in this television series. And actually, that actually makes me think that that's a broader feature of all these sitcoms, actually, whether they're the ones that you're sort of referencing, like South Park or Family Guy, The Simpsons, the television and what's shown on television is is as part of the world of this of these these sitcoms as 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 their own presence on television. And that's that seems to be very true here. And I was struck by when they watched the television the number of times it would sort of um, reflect some sort of official uh, societal discourse or, you know, messaging, but, but very much in a kind of, you know, to point out that it, as a butt of the joke, to kind of point out the kind of lack of, or the dour nature of it, or the lack of fun, or like, you know, I think there's one time they switch on um, the television, they start surfing through all the channels, and there's just lots of sort of Islamic teachings sort of being said to kind of in a humorless manner, and they they're trying to find something to get them through the last few hours of Ramadan, and they kind of dismiss it. And then another time they're looking through, and there's shows like called The Pain, uh, or this is how it's translated in the subtitles, but The Pain, The Suffering, and again they're kind of um, dismissing it because it's it doesn't have anything to them. So there's a kind of cheeky fun to to the show that's that's. That's really kind of interesting to see because it's 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 asserting identity and and a kind of authenticity to the identity through mirth and humor and wit and and rather than kind of these uh you know official state sanctioned narratives um or or you know just sort of official narratives which the characters themselves are presented with so yeah any anything to say about that just struck yeah basically most of the uh most of the authors of arab sitcoms are self-declared fans of uh the simpsons mm. family guy uh south park they therefore they regard these American productions as, their, as the main examples. However, the Arab world is uh, can be regarded as a conservative region. Speaking about society, religion, and uh, other other issues, therefore there are certain limits uh, for being funny for their shows. Uh, of, co- of course, uh, God and Jesus cannot be represented as they are in The Simpsons, for example, and religious issues are mostly avoided. Uh, also, uh, getting engaged in, uh, getting engaged in political issues has certain limits. Uh, so, in the Arab world, there's a general censorship in this regard, and those who uh, got engaged in animation production don't want to be censored because uh, even cutting like a three-minute part of the show it's an ex- uh, extremely big loss of money uh, for them. I'm just just in a just because of time more than anything else because there's so many questions more I'd love to ask about Fridge but we mm-hmm. will we'll try to make sure we cover all of them in, in, with due justice we should move on to our next film so we're returning back to back to Egypt um um as you sort of hinted at earlier and indeed to the to the last years of the the Mubarak regime I believe so I'd be really interested to hear about the context of 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 um, when this was made because or, or when and how and why this was made but 2011 this is um, another television series I, I suspect called the stories of the quran um and the one we watched in particular was a sort of um a, an adaptation of the of the of the of the jonah and the whale um sort of parable um so yeah uh, talk to us about this one um, omar 
The story of Islamic animation in general started in the 90s, where uh, when a Saudi producer called Osama Khalifa started to release feature-length productions revolved, uh, revolving around Islamic uh, history, uh, which means like uh, big Muslim heroes from the past, and also uh, released a number of feature-length productions Islamizing non-Islamic narratives like stories from uh, the uh, from the uh, Arabian Nights and so on. So what he meant by, by Islamizing, first of all, uh, including religious faces in the in the uh, in the uh, narratives, and also include also excluding instrumental music, which according to Saudi or Wahhabi interpretations of Islam are regarded as forbidden. Also, uh, in the early 2000s, a number of Shia productions appeared in uh, Kuwait, mostly co-produced uh, co by Iranian and uh, other Shia uh, organizations in the uh, in the region, telling stories about uh, iconic figures and imams of the Shia uh, Shia history. Both the Saudi and the Shia productions had their limits in distribution because they were uh, addressing specific uh, audiences. However, it was not the case uh, of Egypt. Uh, Islamic animation also appeared in Egypt in the 90s when a local producer called Zainab Zamzam started to release clay animation telling the stories about the prophets. Of course, according to Islamic traditions, prophets cannot be uh, depicted in animation or by any means. However, the company of the prophets can be uh, can be uh, presented. Therefore, uh, these uh, shows... Uh, tell the stories about the prophets without having the, prota uh, the protagonist on the screen. The first uh, high-profile Islamic animation which you mentioned was uh, the stories of the Quran in 2011. One should also know that uh, Al-Azhar is the highest uh, uh, religious authority in Egypt and one of the most respected uh, religious authorities in the whole uh, Sunni world. And uh, back in uh, 1961, Abdul Nasser nationalized the Al-Azhar. And uh, in uh, 1994, President Mubarak uh, gave Al-Azhar the authority to sense uh, the authority of censorship over media uh, contents. Therefore, any production which comes in Egyptian television, especially those who handle religion somehow should have the approval of Al-Azhar first. Uh, Egypt in general is not regarded in the Arab world and in the Muslim world as a power that intends to influence other countries' politics, unlike uh, Saudi Arabia and unlike Iran. Uh, and uh, Al-Azhar has an authority and is respected by other Arab countries and also in countries like Malaysia and even Iran, which is a Shia country, and also Turkey. Therefore, having the stamp of uh, Al-Azhar in any religious production, including these uh, stories of the Quran animation, opens uh, the possibility for to being exported. It was uh, quite a big opportunity for Egyptian animation uh, animation producers in the uh, 2010, especially as after the Arab uprisings of uh, 2011, 
traditional sources of funding started to dry up in Egypt. Therefore, local producers uh, started to get re to rely more and more on the international market and productions talking about Islam and especially this Egyptian moderate version of Islam became extremely marketable in other Arab countries, especially uh, for Gulf countries, those launched uh, children, thematic children television channels in the, the in the mid of 2000s. So there was a huge uh, market demand uh, of these productions. The stories of the Quran uh, is one of the most successful productions in this regard, as it has uh, it was. It had a new series uh, in the coming in the coming years, telling stories and narratives from the Quran and also from the uh, the hadith, which are the stories and quotes uh, of uh, Prophet Muhammad. That's really interesting. That the animal focus in the show was was struck me. It's all it's it's as you say it's the story of the whale. It's told by a kind of is it a goat herder, but he's telling it to his goat. Uh, it's so uh, the goat is the is the audience. So there's this kind of really interesting, almost pantheistic kind of take on 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 this kind of very well known story for many audiences of different of different faiths. Um, uh, and yeah, it just seemed to tap into that kind of the thing we've talked about quite a few times on the podcast that I'm sure Chris has some thoughts on, which is that kind of, you know, the anthropomorphic kind of uh, pleasures and tendencies of, 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 of animation. So yeah, I, th I thought, I thought this was probably my favorite just from as a, as a, as a viewer coming at it cold. I thought it was really rich and, and vibrant for, because of that. And later on, another series followed, which was the story of the women in the Quran, oh, which right. uh, represents a, a very enlightened, to put it that way, uh, representation of women. So in the animation, you uh, some of the uh, some of the women, uh, those who are the wives and uh, and members of the society of the of the prophets, don't even wear a headscarf. And in the frame stories, we see. Uh, a judge, an elderly judge, telling this whole story for uh, his granddaughter, and the the granddaughter recalls the representations of uh, princesses by Pixar and Disney. So he, she as well doesn't wearing a headscarf, and she's uh, all, uh, she's uh, very keen on riding horse and go, running around playing with uh, playing with the boys and so on. Uh, which uh, tells a lot about the Egyptian media's uh, notion uh, to these issues of this time. Yeah, I had notes. I, I kind of wrote down educational entertainment, and then I, you know, thinking either whether it's animals or women or miracles or tolerance or you know this long history of animation, and and you know thinking about I suppose <clears throat> within the UK context, kind of children's long form children's television and and these sort of little life lessons that animation again the, the the format of television makes it really conducive to these sorts of little storytelling um devices i like the fact that it was kind of reflexive about storytelling i i sort of you'll be surprised to hear alex i have nothing to say about anthropomorphism uh that i haven't already said before however um i, I was interested <laughs> I was say, the in first the... bit surprised me immensely but the second bit uh, made it make sense yeah again. <laughs> yeah sure um the I was trying to figure out whether it's cell animated or cell shaded, um, because it seemed like it was on computer, but it was sort of flattened. The images were flattened, and actually, in that flattening, I was thinking, based on what we were saying earlier around these national styles and and so forth, that actually the technology. Our last example that we'll move on to this computer animated um, film, the technology is sort of flattening out 
those conversations around national specificity and the arrival of digital technology perhaps is is meaning that we can't talk about the outsourcing to East Germany in perhaps the same way because the technology perhaps erases those and universalizes and and part of my work on computer animation is that sort of vis- the generic visual quality to these films that that has its roots in a set of computer programs that create self-similarity between all of these products. Pixar create a program and sell it to all these different companies. So lots of these animation studios are using the same software and the outcome is is that everything gets quite flattened. So I was really struck. So I don't know whether it's cell animated or cell shaded. My my feeling is it could be cell shaded because some of the movements felt like they were digital or digitized, but I wasn't I wasn't particularly Sure. So I'd have to do a bit of digging. We better move on to our final one. Yeah, so we're back going uh, back to the UAE for this final one, 2016. Um, yes, so what is this? This was, it seemed to be an extremely photorealistic digital animation, although it is a digital animation. It's not a, it's not a live-action show, but it certainly seems to be uh, riffing on a number of live-action VFX-heavy genres. So I guess my extremely glib point my only extremely glib note on this is this this seems to be some sort of arab uae um alternative to either the how to drain your dragons uh, franchise or the marvel cinematic universe or potentially a bit of both but obviously it's based around um again a, an islamic theology so so omar tell us about bilal it's a high-profile show. Uh, the budget was uh, 30 million uh, US dollars. It was released by a Saudi producer called uh, Ayman, Ayman Jamal, who set up uh, his base in the Emirates, in the uh, free media zone in uh, Dubai, explicitly for this reason to release this show. So as you mentioned, that's absolutely true that it has some Islamic references uh, in it because the protagonist is uh, Bilal ibn Rabah, who's, he, who is basically a hero in Islamic history. He was an Ethiopian slave uh, took into pre-Islamic uh, Mecca. Then he became one of the first followers of Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, uh, then got freed uh, by uh, the Prophet's uncle, uncle, and he became the very first Muezzin, so the uh, guy who calls to prayer in Islamic, uh, in Islamic history. However, the producers didn't want to highlight the Islamic references of the show. Therefore, we have basically two versions. We have one for the international audience and one for the Arab audience. The international version didn't, the international version doesn't even mention Islam or Muhammad or any, any religious references. Meanwhile, the Arab version does. The very, in the very last episode, in the very last see, uh, scene of the show, uh, the in the very last scene of the English version, we see Bilal standing up on a stone, which is basically the Kaaba, uh, the Kaaba in Mecca. Meanwhile, in the Arab version, we see Bilal standing in the same place and starting to call to prayer. So uh, the Islamic identity is there in the Arab version. However, it is absent completely from the uh, Western, uh, from the Western version, or the version went for meant for a Western audience. Ayman Jamal wanted to make Bilal the first uh, internationally re- renowned Arab animation. Uh, however, it also had its limits when reaching a transnational audience. 
Excitingly enough, it became popular in the United States among the African-American communities uh, there because uh, there is a significant part of Muslims in the African-American communities in the United States who regard Bilal being a black African person as a hero of theirs. Therefore, it was uh, quite a big fuss about this show in uh, in that scene. Also, Will Smith uh, Will Smith attended uh, the uh, the screening of the show, and the title song was performed by Seal, giving this uh, black identity for this uh, for this yeah. show, at least in the international scene. Yeah, just to to speak a little bit about those two versions, I wasn't I wasn't aware of the the, the two versions, and this is the film that there's a yeah there's a brief reference in a, a bit of my book that talks about the kind of general expand international expansion of the feature length computer animated film. So this at a basic sort of practical level, I think I was struck between across all of the examples around the different w- ways of accessing them because you sent us a bunch of links, some had subtitles some did not some were on youtube some were in different this this last example has a wikipedia page and it has a detailed cast list and it has so i think we can see the progression in the examples that you gave about being able to see them this felt the most familiar to me based on my research in, into computer animation but also the cast list some of the voice actors renowned i guess stars certainly in the uk um familiar actors in america and then also a couple of voice actors voice artists so the, the person who voices um i think knuckles in the sonic the hedgehog um video game or films and uh, a couple of other names that jumped out to me but this felt the most sort of hollywoodized if that's not doing a disservice to the story and the way that you just just described it certainly in terms of the cast list but given that there are two you said there are two versions um i can't seem to find anything about an alternative voice cast so was it the same voice cast they just edited the film differently and cut things out or was it recast and revoiced or i'm just interested in them in the movement of these kinds of texts across national boundaries the Islamic identity in the Arab version is only indicated in the audio. So okay. uh, the uh, the Arab actors who give their voices for the characters are including some faces at uh, certain points. Uh, however, the uh, on the visual level, it is basically the same. Well, and we began we began with our first example, thinking about the ways in which a tool that had been perceived as a Western, uh, yeah. you know, tool had been turned inwards to to speak about. Arab identity again, and using that word in all its nebulous terms, are we now ending talking about a turning back outwards, or is that too simplistic? Um, are we getting a sense now that 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 countries like the UAA, like Egypt, who are who are who are have some animation industries within them, are, is there more of a tent to internationalize their product, or is that still that kind of commitment to using animation to speak to particular regional and national interests? We see that recently Arab animations are starting to target uh, very different lay, uh, ident- very different audiences, and uh, ex- and express different layers of identities. So we see that there is a very strong tendency, especially in affluent Gulf countries, to mediate about local identities and be, be being very specific about local environment, local stories, presenting local children, local uh, characters for the local children or uh, adult audience. Uh, meanwhile, in the Egyptian case, we see that there is this old tradition of mediating local identities. However, Egyptian producers are 
for financial reasons seeking an other uh, alternatives uh, to to sell their productions therefore in some instances they are uh, creating educational uh, animation and uh, sell them to other Arab countries. They are articulating Islamic identities and selling uh, these productions not only to Arab countries but also to other Muslim countries, uh, sh sharing uh, with them very uh, some course of uh, of the identity. And we we see this new tendency. So Arab animations trying to get global and talking to uh, a transnational audience and to an audience who had very limited knowledge about the Middle East, the Arab world, or uh, Isla the Islamic religion. In this regard, we see that uh, modern platforms like Netflix is providing an opportunity for uh, for local producers. Uh, and also we see that in international film festivals, there is an increasing number of Arab productions trying to uh, frame Arab stories in a way which is understandable for a Western audience. Really interesting. Really interesting. I mean, I God, I could, I could, I could go on and on, but I think, I think that will have to be our our very brief skim over a very complex and very interesting history. It, but don't worry, listeners. If you were left wanting more, there's a whole book about the subject. Yes, um, uh, Omar. So yes, your book is is called Arab Animation: Images of Identity. Um, hopefully, listeners got a little flavour of what to expect from some of the discussions we've had today. But just as a sort of you know, yeah, give give us the sales pitch, Omar. What uh, what what's in it? What can we look forward to? Um, and and what have you hoped to have achieved in the book? When I started to work on Arab animation, uh, there was very limited literature about this topic. And I had to uh, collect, uh, to build up the story from the very beginning, from newspaper articles, from interviews conducted with producers, and so on. So I was uh, lucky enough to write about whatever I want. Therefore, I decided to cover this whole story, starting from the, uh, the 30s of last century until... Uh, recently or basically to mid uh, mid of the 2010s and show what notions of identities are these productions are mediating what are the similarities and differences between uh, the media and culture and the uh, media and cultural industries of uh, different arab countries and how animation productions are is embedded in the social and political environment of their country Fascinating, really great, and yes, well, thank you yeah. very much for coming on the show and chatting about it, and thanks very much, listeners. We'll put a put a link to the book um, in in the show notes, so you can check it out there. But uh, you know, Google it as well, uh, and I'm sure you'll, yeah. you'll 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 find it, uh, and, and out in paperback very soon, I believe. So uh, so that will make it that, Alex is out in paperback right now because it's, it's in my it's, hand. Right, well, there, there we are, go. indeed, indeed, literally in out in paperback. paperback. Okay, out paperback, yeah, and we'll also add a, a bunch of links so people can go and watch and, and sort of watch and listen along as we go through some of these examples. As I said, I think it's really, you end the book by talking about the circulation of, of our Arab animation. And I do think it is interesting, the examples that you sent us, the different different modes of access. Some are some are accessible insofar as they are widely available online and some are a little bit diff more difficult to, to find, I would imagine. But it, it seems, yeah, it seems like this is a really intriguing and expanding and internationalizing um, kind of topic, really. So I'm I'm... 
yeah, definitely once more going to be directing students onto the book and also some of the films because I think once again one can do the history of animation and just stay stay within the confines of Hollywood, which doesn't do anyone any favors. So this is a really great opportunity to start moving in different spaces. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. If, if listeners have any other examples of Arab animation that we haven't covered today that they think we should cover, cover it yourselves. Just uh, email us on via the contact us tab at fantasy-animation.org. We'd be delighted to hear some suggestions for blog posts um, or footnote episodes that we can uh, mention in later episodes. Um, also, you can look at the archive or on the, on the website of blog entries that we've already got and listen to previous podcast episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Fan and in Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. And that's the same handle at gmail.com to email us with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Otherwise, that's been us for another uh, episode and we'll see you next time. Bye.